Once again, happy and blessed Resurrection Sunday. And that's why we have really come here this morning to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I, I think I say this pretty much every message I do on Resurrection Sunday. I make it a point to say the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest event in the history of the world. Now, we say amen to that. It's a lot of folks, no idea what I'm even talking about, let alone it's the greatest event in human history. We know at very least, and we know it's the greatest event in human history, but we know at very least it's the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Without the resurrection, there is no Christian faith, no salvation, no hope for mankind. And that's why, guys, I'd like to spend our time this morning looking at the implications of the resurrection, a message I've entitled, Because He Lives. Because He Lives. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has both eternal and practical application, uh, implications, I should say, for the Christian. Let me start with the um, eternal implications, and we'll move to the practical. Now, you're not gonna, I'm not going to have you turn to all these scriptures. Too many this morning. I will have you write them down. You can look them up later. Uh, but I will have you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, because we'll spend a little time in that passage. First of all, looking at the eternal implications of the resurrection. And the first thing is that the resurrection guarantees that our sins are forgiven. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, Paul said, If Christ is not risen, so he's arguing from the negative. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Now, I realize that we're living at a time when the whole concept of sin is um, very antiquated and uh, uh, irrelevant in the minds of many folks today. I mean, uh, it's like, you know, we've gotten past all that puritanical stuff, okay? Uh, a lot of folks in our secular culture, and our culture is becoming more and more secular by the, by the year, but there's a lot of folks, especially young folks, who when you talk to them about sin, they roll their eyes. Oh, here we go. Another Bible thumper, you know, uh, talking about sin. Really, they don't even understand what sin means. They have no concept of what sin is all about and uh, what God has to say about it. <laughs> People today think that sin is kind of an outdated, uh, uh, antiquated idea, and God's not worried about that kind of stuff anymore. Uh, as long as you, you know, believe what you're doing is right and it's okay to live with a boyfriend or girlfriend is okay to do certain things even if the bible condemns it because it's all about love and you know we love each other and god's okay with that and 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 really today in a lot of people's minds sin is no big deal it's always been a big deal to god always okay but again folks don't even realize what it is they think sin is only murdering people and robbing banks and in the most heinous of crimes they don't realize what it really stands for in the in the mind of God. We know the New Testament was written in Greek, Koine Greek, and the Greek word translated sin in our Bibles literally means to miss the mark, to miss the mark. In Romans 3.23, Paul the Apostle tells us that all have sinned, all have missed the mark. 
Of course, that begs the question, well, what does the mark or the bullseye represent? Because uh, it was an archery term. And uh, for hitting the bullseye on a target, missing the mark, it was an archery term. And so it begs the question, well, what does the mark or the bullseye represent? It represents, as Paul said in Romans 3.23, the glory of God. All have, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. All right, well, what is the glory of God? Sinless perfection. In that regard, we all know we have all fallen short. None of us are perfect. None of us can say, I never sin. We have all missed the mark. We have all failed to measure up to sinless perfection, except for one man. There's only been one man in the history of the world that was born, lived, and died a sinless man. Of course, that man is Jesus Christ. The only way for us as fallen sinners to get to heaven. <laughs> a lot of people don't realize this. Let me just fill you in. I didn't know it before I started reading the Bible. Do you realize that to get into heaven, you have to be perfect? Sinless. There is none of this, I'm working my way toward heaven. If I can just get enough rosaries in. I was Catholic, so I could pick on Catholics a little bit. If I could just get enough rosaries in, light enough candles, I'm, I'm getting there. No, you are so far from there, you have no idea. The only way for us as fallen sinners to get into heaven, we have to be perfect. The only way for us to be perfect, sinless, and blameless in the eyes of God, the only way for us to get into heaven is to be what the Bible calls in Christ. In Christ. The Bible says either a person is in Christ or they are in sin. Both of which being designations of existence representing a state of being. A state of being. You're in or out. All right? You're not working towards. You're in or you're out. Okay? All mankind falls into two categories. Two positional state of beings either they are children of god or they are children of the devil either they are of the light or they are of the darkness either they are saved or they are lost either they are he heaven bound or they are hell bound it's very important that we understand that so a lot of folks because they have been indoctrinated with religion and have never read the Bible, which speaks of a relationship, not that you're working towards that you either have or you don't have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the state of being in Christ is all about. When I say being in Christ, it means being saved, uh, having eternal life. It's predicated, this is where I'm going, it's predicated upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As he told his disciples in John 14, verse 19, because I live, you also will live. Now hang on to that, we'll come back to it. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we would still be lost because we would still be in our sins. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 4, verses 24 and 5, and I'll read it to you out of the Amplified. He says, how God the Father raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Everything is based on that. 
our Lord Jesus was raised from the dead, who was betrayed and put to death because of our misdeeds. He was punished in our place for us, right? He was put to death because of our misdeeds and was raised from the dead to secure our justification, our acquittal, making our account balance, okay? Actually erasing, as Paul said in, uh, in, a, in Colossians 2, all the handwritings of ordinances that were against us. What does that mean? Every sin we ever committed in thought, word, and deed has been written into God's ledger. It's accounting language. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, with his blood, he wrote on our ledger, tetelestai, it's the Greek word. It's the word he uttered from the cross when he said, it is finished, bowed his head and dismissed his spirit. Tetelestai. That word could also be translated, paid in full. Because of Jesus going to the cross, and most importantly for the focus of this morning, being raised from the dead, his resurrection, our sins have been forgiven. Secondly, the resurrection guarantees that those who have died before Jesus returns are not lost. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes on in verse 17 and says, And if Christ is not risen, verse 18, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, when the New Testament talks about believers dying, it doesn't just use the word death. It usually says they sleep or they have fallen asleep. Now, that's not teaching soul sleep. When a believer dies now, Paul said, like in 2 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. So our soul and spirit go to be with the Lord because we're saved. The body, which is not redeemed yet, which is of the earth, is buried in the earth. In other words, it's put to sleep. And when the rapture happens, our bodies will be resurrected, awakened, glorified, and reunited with our soul and spirit. Okay? Because somebody asked me about that after first service. I thought I'd just throw that out there. But the idea that because Jesus rose from the dead, those who didn't make it to the rapture and died as believers, they're not lost. That's what Paul is saying. And he's saying that because that was a major concern among the first century believers. You see, they were expecting, expecting Jesus to come back at any moment, which is good. We should still be expecting his return at any moment. Okay? Especially they believed he was going to come for sure in their lifetime to rapture them. But as the older believers began to die off and Jesus hadn't yet returned, they began to mourn for them thinking that they were lost. They had perished because they didn't make it till Jesus returned to rapture his church. Now, Paul, this was a pretty serious issue, and Paul wanted to address it, which he did in 1 Thessalonians 4. And I'll just read you verses 13 and 14. But now you know the background. Now you know why he wrote this to them in, in Thessalonica. He said, now, uh, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope? They're not lost. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. 
And so his point is that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it guarantees that those believers that die before the rapture, they're not lost. They will absolutely be raised in glory. But also the resurrection guarantees that believers who are alive when Jesus returns for his church will be taken in the rapture as well. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting with verse 15. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we, listen, who are still alive on the earth when the rapture happens, we're going to be caught up, he says. That's the Greek word harpazo. It means to be snatched away suddenly. Of course, in the Latin Vulgate, it's the word rapio, which we get the word rapture from. But of course we're going to be snatched away off the earth because the next thing that happens on the earth after the rapture is the wrath of God is poured out, his judgment upon this Christ-rejecting world. We don't have to be judged with the wicked because we've received Christ, okay? So before God pours his judgment out upon this world, he evacuates his church off of the earth before his judgment comes. We will be a part of that, of course. If a person dies before the rapture, they're going to be resurrected a microsecond, probably, before those of us who are just taken, snatched away off the earth. And as we are snatched away, we receive our glorified bodies. Even as they coming out of the grave, their earthly bodies will now be glorified. He says, uh, to end that, and we're going to meet the Lord in the clouds, in the air. He says, then we will forever be with the Lord. He says, to so encourage the other Christians with these words. Okay? Hey, let everybody know what's going to happen. All right? Your family and friends that have died as Christians, they're not lost. The Lord's going to resurrect them even before we are changed. Number four, the resurrection guarantees that we shall reign with Jesus someday. The resurrection of Christ guarantees that we shall reign with him someday. Revelation 1 verse 5, it says, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness and uh, the first to rise from the dead. Of course, the idea is never to die again. And he will be the ruler of of all the kings and all the nations of the earth. Jesus Christ rose to reign. He rose, you can read Psalm, four, uh, Psalm 2, how that Jesus Christ came to die, but when he rose, he rose to reign. He's coming back someday to establish a kingdom. Now the good news for us is because we're believers in Christ, we are going to reign with him. Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed are and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Now understand something, and I've explained this before, but if you are new, I just want to explain this to you. When the New Testament talks about the first resurrection, that's not an event. That's a category. The first resurrection started with the Lord Jesus Christ, His resurrection. He's the first fruit. 
His resurrection guaranteed an abundant harvest of souls would be resurrected from the grave as well, right? Because I live, you will live also. And so the idea is that Jesus was the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. The next group will be the church before the, rap, before the uh, tribulation, when the rapture happens. And then, of course, when Jesus comes back to the earth to establish his kingdom, the Bible says he at that time will resurrect the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints so that they can all enter the kingdom with us. So the first resurrection is a category. The first resurrection for believers right now would be the rapture for us. Okay? And so John is saying in Revelation 20 that because Christ rose from the dead... All those who are his on the earth right now, we are going to take part in the first resurrection when the rapture happens, and uh, we will be saved from the second death. The second death is hell, lake of fire. I mean, if you're taken in the rapture, it means you're saved. And if you're saved, you're definitely never going to hell. But John wants you to know that. Those of us who take part in the rapture, the second death has no power on us. That's the lake of fire, hell. And uh, we will be a kingdom of priests, and we will reign with the Lord upon the earth for the whole thousand-year millennial kingdom. So the resurrection guarantees that we will reign with Jesus someday. Number five, the resurrection guarantees we will be raised from the dead, listen, never to die again. We've talked about that, alluded to it. But I'll give you the scripture. Uh, there's others, but 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. Uh, they are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. We'll have our glorified bodies someday. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. So because the Christ rose from the dead, it never to die again, it guarantees that when we are resurrected, death will never be a part of, it will never touch us ever again. Now guys, look, these, none of these truths are new. Most of you here this morning are believers and you know these truths very well. You've been uh, hearing about them, reading about them for many years that you've been saved. And they're basic to our Christianity. But the resurrection of Christ has some profound practical implications on our lives as Christians right now. Right now. Let me go through some of these. First of all, the resurrection guarantees an abundant life in Christ right now for the Christian. John 10, verse 10. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. When John talks about spiritual life, eternal life, everlasting life. He used the Greek word zoe. And the Greeks had different words uh, for the same idea because the different words communicated different aspects of that idea or thought or subject. In Greek, they have a word for life. It's the word bios. We get our word biology from that Greek word. Now, bios, life, is just simply existence as opposed to non-existence. Life as opposed to non-life, okay? You could be in a vegetative state in a hospital somewhere, hooked up to machines that are keeping you alive, and you would 
you would uh, fall into the category of having bios life. You're alive. But folks, that ain't living, right? So the Greeks had a word for life in all of its fullness and blessing. It was the word zoe. And that's the term John uses when he talks about eternal life. It's Ionius zoe in the Greek. Zoe being a word that expresses the idea of eternal life. But see, here's the thing. Eternal life would not be a blessing if it was just life stretched out into eternity. If a person was in hospitalized and could not move, they were paralyzed, we'll say, barely kept alive by machines, being fed with tubes and so on, if you walked up to them and said, would you like to live forever? What do you think they'd say? Get out of here. I'm praying for death. See, the thing that makes eternal life so wonderful is not just existence stretched out into infinity. It's life in all of its fullness and richness and blessing and joy times a billion times a billion. That's heaven. That's the kind of life that awaits us in heaven and we get a little preview of right now on the earth. Of course, because we're still in these bodies of death and they get sick and they wear out and they're subject to pain and all kinds of other things, sometimes that kind of mitigates the, uh, the joy that we have as Christians, but it's there. And can you imagine when the trumpet sounds, the angel shouts, and the Lord says, come up here? And in that instant, we jettison this earthly body. Well, actually, it's transformed into a glorious new body that will never taste death, never get sick, never... know never shed another tear will know fullness of joy in a place that Jesus had been preparing for us for 2,000 years I go to prepare a place for you I'm going to come back to receive you to myself he promised that where I am there you might be also how long did it take God to prepare the universe in Genesis how many days six can you the universe is pretty spectacular isn't it can you imagine what heaven looks like he's been preparing it for 2,000 years I can't wait to see what he's got in store for us. Guys, God never intended the Christian life to be bland and boring. That's my point. He intended it to be an adventure. And I'm not trying to, okay, I, I'm not saying it's free of pain. I'm not trying to equate God's kingdom with the magic kingdom on earth. It's not Disneyland and fun all the time. Okay? I mean, you know, there, there are trials, there are hardships. Our brothers and sisters in third world countries, they live with, with the prospect of dying for their faith every single day. I'm just saying, there is an element to everlasting life. You know, the Christian life, if it's live right, and I'm talking really live right, drawing close to Jesus every day, seeking him for every decision you make and everywhere you go, it's an adventure. It's an adventure. And when you live out the purpose for which God created you, there is no greater joy in this world. Jesus said it, John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Guys, fullness of joy is the birthright of every child of God. It is so sad to see Christians who walk around with long, sour expressions on their face, like it's a burden to be a Christian, like it's a burden to serve God. Can somebody else do it? I'm tired of serving. I... It... Look, if, if that's your attitude when you serve the Lord, don't serve him. 
He doesn't need it, and you're not being blessed for it. If you can't serve him with fullness of joy, I get, I don't have to serve God. I get to serve God. Amen. If that can't be our attitude, then God doesn't want your service or anything else you give to him. He likes to, wants a cheerful giver. So first of all, the practical implication of the resurrection is that the resurrection guarantees an abundant life right now for us who are Christians. Number two, the resurrection guarantees a life of power. A life of power. Philippians 3.10, Paul said, My desire in life is that I might know him, Jesus. Well, Paul wrote that 30 years after he accepted Christ. But see, he always wanted to know Christ in a deeper way. So he said, My, my whole purpose, my whole goal is that I might know him, listen, and the power of his resurrection. Well, I would dare say every one of us would admit Paul the Apostle had power. But apparently there was a lot more power that he didn't feel he was tapping into and wanted even that power, more power. Ephesians 1, verses 18 to 20. I love what Paul said. This is my prayer for you who are believers, is that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened that you would know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his, of his inheritance in the saints? I only wish I could communicate to you how glorious heaven is. You would never want to stay here on this earth. You would never want to build a kingdom here. It would always be about heaven. And, and everything you do would be geared towards heaven. But he goes on to say, verse 19... My prayer is that you understand what God's got in store for you in eternity. But, uh, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul is saying that the same mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives inside of us. And you know why? Because we are, are, are commanded by God to live a supernatural life. The Christian life is not a natural life. It can't be lived by our own human strength. If it's done right, it has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Everything we do for him has to be energized by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. But it's there. The power is available. Trouble is we try to get in there with the energy of our flesh. Well, I got my degree. Just graduated Bible college. I'm ready to go. And, and, and that's the mentality with a lot of ministers today. They think that their degree enables them to be in ministry. Guys, a degree doesn't make you a pastor. It makes you a, it makes you a graduate. God's got to call you into the ministry as a pastor or someone else in ministry. But the, the good news is the power of the Holy Spirit through the resurrected, ascended Christ is available to all Christians. All of us. Because we all need it. Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 16. Paul said, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might. The Greek word is dunamis. We get our word dynamic and, and dynamite 
from that Greek word. Paul is saying, it's my prayer that God would strengthen you, and the idea is day by day, with his divine, dynamic, supernatural power, which is essential to live the life he's calling us to live, through his spirit in the inner man. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to that very power that works in us. Anything God tells us to do, anything he commands, he never commands apart from the power of the Spirit which is available if we'll seek him. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. If I try to get in there and with my own strength and say, well, God, I can do it. I can do it. I, I can build a church. I, I can be involved in ministry. I can go on the mission field. Watch me, Lord. I can do it. And well, you'll see how fast you fall. Because God doesn't want to build self-reliance. He wants to build self-dependence, spirit-dependence. Our depending on him, right? Number three, the resurrection of Christ guarantees a life of victory. Not just a life of power. Power is great, but if, it doesn't, if it's not applied into your life, and doesn't result in victory, it's kind of useless. Be like when I used to work before I got saved, the summer I graduated high school, I worked at a race car place. They built, among other things, these, these um, dragsters. And the, and the company had their own company dragster they used to take and, and race in these drag strips, right? I, I forgot, I'm doing this from memory, I think they kicked out eight 1,000 horses. I remember they were going to take it to a drag strip, uh, you know, th that weekend. So they rolled it out into the, uh, into the parking lot and cranked it up and turned it on. And I'm not kidding you. It was so deafening I couldn't even hear the power. But if that power isn't engaged, that thing goes nowhere. A lot of Christians have the power of God, but they're like a dragster that's in neutral. Vroom, vroom. A lot of noise, a lot of talk. They don't do anything with it. Get it engaged, man. Get in ministry. Stop talking about how much you know the Lord and start doing something about it, right? Don't sit there in the church. Room, room, look at me. Room, room. Great, wonderful. You're not going anywhere. Or was I? <laughs> rum, rum, thank you. Uh, yeah, the resurrection guarantees us power and victory, right? Uh, 1 John 5, 4, John says, For whatever is born of God, and he's talking about being raised from the deadness that we were in and dead in trespasses and sins. Okay, So for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So if you're a Christian, you've been raised from the dead uh, to new life in Christ. And the, again, one of the birthright of that is that you overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And there, he's not talking about some force called faith, like the word of faith folks like to picture it. He's talking about the, what, what overcomes the world in our lives is our faith in Christ, which saved us and put us in Christ, who himself uh, conquered uh, principalities and powers on Calvary's cross, and three days later he rose from the dead, right? That's the idea. Our victory comes from Jesus. 
When you're in Christ, you, you have all victory and power. Because you're in Christ. I mean, he vanquished principalities and powers on the cross. Thoroughly destroyed, defeated the devil when he rose from the dead. And death and everything other enemy. We defeat, we have victory through Christ. Through Christ. By faith in him, but then faith every day that he lives his life through us. We'll get to that more in a moment. And then Romans 8.37, yet in all these things, we are more than what? Conquerors through Christ. Not just adequate. Sometimes we conquer, sometimes we don't. We are more than conquerors. I wish more Christians understood that. We are more. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees us victory over the flesh, the world, and the devil, our three enemies. Now, guys, that doesn't mean that we have no part in our victory. Or that we have no responsibility to exercise any effort in bringing our victory about. That's not what that means. Let me give you a few things as we kind of wind down now. Give you a few things you can do so that the victorious life God intended you to live out in your life will become a reality in your life. And now this is where, as they say, the rubber meets the road, right? This is where theology intersects with practicality all right understand this again we can have all the doctrine nailed down all our little theological ducks in a row if we don't apply what we learn and again the new testament you'll find a common theme we learn to live okay we learn to live we we we, we study doctrine for the sake of duty we need to live what we we know the first way you're going to have victory. It's all God, but we have some things that he expects us to do. The first thing we need to do is to take responsibility for our sins. If you want victory in your life as a Christian, you must take responsibility for your sin. You are not a victim. You don't have a disease. It steps on people's toes. That's contrary to what we're being heard, what we're hearing from the medical uh, community. You're not a victim. You do not have a disease. So what you need to do is repent for making excuses and not forsaking the idol in your life, whatever that idol is—alcohol, drugs, uh, whatever. A disease is something you get. A behavior is something you do. Very important that we understand that. Because too many people want to excuse themselves, want to accuse others. Well, I'm this way because of my upbringing. Or because of this or that, right? And what that does is it gives them permission to feel sorry for themselves and to drown their sorrows in alcohol or drugs as they blame somebody else. You'll never have victory if you don't take responsibility for what you're doing. Number two, purge your house and any other place you spend time, your car, your office, and so on, of the thing that has you bound, that has a hold on you, whether it's cigarettes or alcohol, the Internet, cable TV, certain foods, whatever, okay? 
you will realize by God's grace, if you purge your life of these things, you'll start having victory. You don't, you don't, you don't wait uh, to feel like, I'll, I'll, I'll share with what, for my wife, and, and she's shared this with people, so I'm not breaking a confidence. For 10 years, roughly, after Cindy got saved, she still smoked cigarettes. Now, she knew it was wrong. She knew that it was hurting her body, and this body belonged to the Lord. And so, you know, and she felt bad about it. And we just, I just prayed for her, and, and uh, a few others who knew about it prayed for her. And, and, and she knew that she was going to have to give it up someday, but she really liked it. She really liked to smoke. And then one day the Lord spoke to her and said, Cindy, you're never going to feel like giving up the cigarettes. So you just take a step. To, to, to throw the cigarettes away and trust me. And she did. And God gave her victory. I remember a pastor I know real well was talking about this very thing and he said that a guy came uh, you know, after the pastor had preached about victory in the Christian life and so on. And so as the pastor was walking out to his car after the service, as one guy comes up and with a pack of cigarettes in his pocket and says, you know, pastor, he said, you know, I really appreciate what you had to say. And, you know, I know that someday I'm going to have victory over these cigarettes. And the pastor said, well, give them to me right now. <laughs> give them to me right now. Today's the day. And the guy, you know, no, no, no. You know, we did, you know. <laughs> Look, you want victory? It's not next week or next year or whatever. It's today. Okay. Get rid of the junk in your house. I was telling first service that in the book of Acts, uh, it talks about the church of Ephesus, Acts 19. talks about the Christians in Ephesus. Ephesus was a demonic stronghold of the area at that time. A lot of occultism. A lot of occult practices. And when the people of Ephesus started getting saved, a lot of them loved the Lord, but they hadn't purged their houses of all the incantations and the amulets and all the paraphernalia that went along with their old lifestyle. And apparently it was hindering what the Spirit wanted. This is a very interesting story. It was hindering what the Spirit wanted to do in and through their lives and in their families. So the Lord began to put it on their hearts. They needed to go through their houses and purge their houses. So they gathered up all the junk, all the paraphernalia, the books of incantation, and they brought it together, and it, it, it totaled like in the millions of dollars. And they burned it all. And it says as soon as they did that, a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit came upon them, and the Word of God prevailed mightily and grew among their families and their community. When Cindy and I got saved, the first thing we did we purged our house of any statues of the saints, being raised Catholic, took all our hard rock albums. <laughs> albums, I'm dating myself, right? <laughs> I hear they're coming back, vinyl. <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. So I was a trendsetter, just so you know that. <laughs> took all our old albums, rock albums, and we didn't sell them. There was a lot of money there. We didn't give them away or sell them. We busted them, threw them out. We purged our home of the evil because, uh, this is getting off the subject a little bit, but there are definitely demonic forces that attach themselves to objects. That's the idea behind black cats, by the way, because certain objects or living uh, or inanimate things 
like amulets and things. Believe, people believe in the occult, they have power because the Spirit's attached to those things. Now, I'm not going to say that's wrong. I believe there's probably a lot of truth to that. And that's why we have to purge our houses, right? You want victory? Then get rid of the movies in your house that are blatantly occultic or demonic or wicked or, you know, the games, Dungeons and Dragons. If you have that in your house, go home today and burn it. Get rid of it. Some of these video games, incredibly wicked, that maybe your kids are playing with. And you wonder why their behavior is kind of antisocial. And they're in, there's a darkness about them. You're letting them marinate in the darkness. Get rid of the stuff. Number three, you want victory? Plan your day ahead of time. Where you're going to go and probably especially where you're not going to go. Right? Look, we learn from the book of Daniel that victory comes not by accident, but by living on purpose. Remember what it says of Daniel in Babylon? Again, one of the most occult strongholds of the ancient world. It says he purposed in his heart he wouldn't defile himself with the king's food. He purposed he wouldn't eat the king's food, which the meat was sacrificed to idols and so on. And so he ate just vegetables with his buddies. Daniel was a godly man. And the secret to his godliness was he purposed to live for God. Didn't matter if he was in Jerusalem or 700 miles away in Babylon. His motto was not when in Rome, when in Babylon, do as the pagans. I'm a child of God wherever I'm planted, and I'm going to live for God right here. I don't care what everyone else is doing. doesn't matter. I'm living for the Lord right here. Number four, start each day in prayer. Giving yourself totally to God is a living sacrifice. I'm not saying start your day with an hour of prayer, but a few minutes. Well, you bring your heart to the Lord, and you say, Lord, today I want to live for you. I was telling first service that uh, I'm going to be on the radio tomorrow uh, evening, 5 o'clock, on a live uh, radio call-in program called Biblical Insights. And I'm going to be, with, uh, be on with Mike McIntosh, one of my favorite guys in the whole world, pastor for many years. And I just heard it from a guy that knows Mike very well. At the beginning of every year, Mike would take his uh, desk calendar. And it took about a half hour, he'd write Jesus on every single square. Because every time he looked at that square for a new day, the first thing he saw was Jesus, and that's how he started his day, knowing that today belongs to Jesus. And I want to live for him. Hey, these are little things, right? But a lot of little things add up to some big victories, okay? Start each day in prayer, giving yourself totally to God as a living sacrifice, and trust that Jesus is going to live his life through you that day. James 4, 8, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Number five, don't forsake the fellowship of other Christians at church. The Holy Spirit, listen, often empowers us through the body of Christ. That's the problem when people uh, are, are kind of uh, uh, defeated and, and kind of giving in to sin. They're not going to church anymore. The devil has peeled them away from the body of Christ where there is strength, right? We are the body of Christ. Every one of us is like a cell in the body of Christ. 
See how long a human cell would last taken out of the body and placed over on the table somewhere away from the body would die instantly, right? We are the body of Christ. We are cells in that body, so to speak, and we need each other. We need each other. We have to be plugged in together. We have to be one. And the Bible says don't forsake uh, the fellowship of the saints. Don't stop going to church. I know you don't feel like it if you're not doing well. That's when you should especially be in church to draw strength from other believers, right? Don't forsake church. And when you are in church, seek out, this is number six, seek out a spirit-filled believer, a mature person or persons that you can confess your struggles and trespasses to and ask them for prayer support. Again, James 5.16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Okay, maybe physically or healed from other practices like watching pornography or some other sin that has you bound. That you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. I'll give you two more real quick. Number seven, remember, God has deposited into your account all the power you need to live a life of victory, but you need to draw on it by faith. It's there. Right? Remember what Paul said in Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me through the resurrected life of the Spirit inside. And the life I now live in the flesh or in this physical body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I must again draw. The, the power is there, but it's released through our faith that Christ is there that Jesus Christ, through the power of the Spirit, will give me victory over any issue, any problem, any situation. And number eight, the best defense. Remember, when it comes to victory, the best defense is a good, strong offense. Be proactive. Again, fill your day with God. The people of God, be in the Word, come to church. But remember this. All spiritual warfare starts in the mind with how you think. Because the devil knows. If he can get a hold of your thinking, he can control your living. That's what the Bible says in Romans 12, verse 1. When you're saved, don't be conformed any longer to this world's way of thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Get in the Word. You've been brainwashed all these years by the devil. Get in the Word and get your mind unbrainwashed, cleansed out, and start thinking the thoughts of God. It'll give you victory, right? Didn't that Paul say that in Philippians 4, 8? He said, look, whatever things are true and noble and pure and holy, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue in it, if there's anything that's praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Fill your mind with those things, and the devil won't be able to slip in there ungodly temptations. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. That's where our thoughts should be where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Listen, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Keep your mind in heaven. Guys, let me just bring this to a close by saying this. The resurrection was never intended by God to be one day on a calendar. He intended it to be a dynamic, everyday way of life. That's how we have to think of it. As I said when we started, I have... Name this message, 
because he lives. Now, Friday's good, Friday's message, Good Friday message, the title was Because of Love. Resurrection Sunday, because he lives. Guys, literally every blessing in the Christian life, I'm not overstating this, literally every blessing in the Christian life that God has promised us and made available to us was made possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Everything, because he lives. It reminds me of a song by the same name written by Bill and Gloria Gaither. Let me read it to you. It goes like this. God sent his son, they called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth living just because he lives. How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives. But greater still the calm assurance this child can face uncertain days because he lives. And then one day I'll cross that river. I'll fight life's final war with pain. And then as death gives way to victory... I'll see the lights of glory, and I'll know he reigns. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, and life is worth the living, just because he lives. And then it ends, because he lives, because he lives. Well, I'll just close with something Paul said. Paul the Apostle reminds us in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, We know that God, who raised the Lord Jesus, will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen, heavenly things. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. And may I be so bold as to add, all because he lives. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you. For loving us so much, you sent your son to die for us. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you willingly came as our substitute. You willingly took our punishment on yourself on Calvary's cross. And three days later, you rose from the dead alive. And because you live, we are guaranteed to live someday as well. We will be raised. And we will have a glorified body, an experience, an existence we can't even imagine right now in heaven. So we thank you, Lord. Right now there's work to do, so give us grace to be a light to those in darkness, to be faithful, Lord, in all you've given us to do. But give us grace to remember that every single day, every command, every challenge, we can face and we can have victory in because you live. It's all because you live, Lord. It's all because you live. We thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.